Agriculture plays a huge role in Pakistan's economy. It employs about 42% of the country's workforce and contributes 19% to the GDP. But it relies heavily on inefficient supply chains. My guest in this episode, the Misal Podcast, wants to change that. His name is Mohammad Mustafa and he's a co-founder of Easy Fresh, a B2B startup connecting farmers and retailers across Pakistan, eliminating intermediaries and increasing efficiency. Let's listen in. Welcome to the Misal Podcast, Mustafa. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me over, Zayed. Thank you so much for joining me. I heard about you first uh, when you were working on Maka Online and you have come a long way since then. So would love to touch on all that journey of yours. Let's get started with a quick introduction. Uh, please tell me a little bit about yourself and what problem are you trying to solve with Easy Fresh? I'm an Islamabadi boy. I grew up here. This is my second startup. Easy Fresh is my second startup. First was Maka Online. Both of them have been trying to surf in areas that can create impact. Yeah, Easy Fresh right now is solving uh, the problem of providing fair market access to farmers. Um, smallholder farmers and generally all farmers in Pakistan have to go through middlemen, through marketplaces called Mondays. Um, and the whole process is not just opaque, but also a little unfair at times um, with a lot of delays in payments and the likes. What we're trying to do is solve for that problem. So can you touch a little bit upon like you know, what made you decide to solve this problem? Was like the co-founders, was this like a market insight that you had that you were like, you know what, I believe I know a solution to the problem these you know farmers are having and I can build a product around it. Um, so after Mocha shut down, I started work for Airlift and I was looking after their operations. Um, yeah, the warehouses, all the warehouses across Pakistan. That's what I was doing. What I noticed was that um, there was that the volume of fresh produce uh, was just going up and up and up. Almost every every fourth order was primarily fresh produce. But what I also so there was insane demand. But what I also noticed was that the supply chain for fresh produce was completely broken. Um, it was uh, it just wasn't uh, it was very unreliable. It was one of the bigger headaches I had almost every day, ensuring quality, ensuring supply, so on. We were dealing with suppliers who were um, not not too savvy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, they weren't suppliers you could send out an email to. That's what we were doing. Um, so there was it was evident that both the demand and the supply side. Uh, there's a lot of demand and there's there are problems in the supply side. And then for a very long time, uh, we've been, uh, my co-founders and I have been just talking about what are the bigger challenges in Pakistan. And the four of us, we firmly believe that uh, if you want to fix Pakistan, you fix agriculture. Is this a theory we have? Why? Because agriculture makes up more than 20% of our GDP, but it employs more than half of the workforce. Uh, more than 100 million folks are employed in agriculture in Pakistan. So you can imagine how inefficient it is if half your population is just contributing to 20% of your GDP. Agriculture was a space we wanted to work in for a long while, and, but all four of us were uh, too apprehensive, didn't know how to do this, didn't know if we had it in us to tackle such a big problem. But after working for Airlift, um, it just became evident that this we want to give it our best shot as well. There's a now and everything. So then the four of us just banded together and 
jumped right in. So how long have you guys been working together uh, on Easy Fresh? Just about 18 or 20 months. Yeah. So how big uh, is your team currently? Oh, we're about 20, 25 people. We're 20, 25 people spread across Pakistan. Uh, we, we have... We sell in multiple markets uh, across the country, but primarily most of our selling is in Karachi and Istanbul. We do a lot of exports to Dubai, so that's something we're very proud of, uh, trying to bring in some sort of foreign exchange into the country. Uh, but our field force that works with farmers is spread across the country. We invest small towns where we work directly with farmers. Uh, I mean, you, of course you work with farmers, so you have to have a value proposition for them, right? For them, they sell to people who want to buy from them, right? For them, it's like they're not nitpicky about who they sell to. So yeah. how do you get them to, you know, work with you, basically adopt something that's different uh, from what they have been used to? And how does that, how's that reception been so far? One of the bigger problems that farmers face is the delay in payments. They they promised a price, but that, uh, that price may not materialize and uh, that payment can take ages. It can take anywhere from, if, it, if they're lucky, it'll be about a week's, week late. But if they're unlucky, it could be six months or 12 months or it could be paid in the next season when the farmer delivers more produce to the same buyer. That's how, that's how it works, unfortunately. So the, the, the bigger problem that farmers are really facing is this cash flow problem where they're constantly trying to juggle uh, money, really juggle cash. Um, and hence, they rely on the same middlemen, the same um, yeah, lenders, basically, to get some money and finance the inputs that they want to use for their next crop. How, how we solve it, the value proposition we bring to the farmer is a guarantee that they will receive their payment on time. And that on time is literally 48 hours. So they receive their payment. And now that we've been working for so long, that value proposition is really working well with farmers. Before this, before Easy Fresh, farmers would only give their produce to people who either paid up in cash or um, who already paid in advance um, for a portion of their crop. But thankfully, with the trust that we've built with farmers, that no longer is the issue. How has the middleman reaction been to you coming in and, you know, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure the farmers are like, you know what, you know, I'm getting paid in 48 hours and you are paying me in a week. So I'm going to go with the 48 hour, right, person. So how's that been so far? Right. When we started off, um, we thought, okay, we're going to buy the whole Pakistan, the middleman will come and say, there'd be a right and, you know, we'd be in trouble. You see, no one's back at an island, yeah. Because the thing is, the agri sector is insanely huge. We are a very tiny player, a very tiny player. And uh, by virtue of our size, uh, by vir- not just our size, sorry, the vir- by virtue of the size of the sector, we've not really stepped on anybody's toes. Um, some farmers are still working exclusively with some middlemen. Not some, but most uh, farmers are working exclusively with some middlemen. And that's how it is. Uh, we will not be able to break those relationships. Those are relationships that have been formed over generations. Uh, they're also fair relationships. The artists are paying on time and they're paying decently. So we don't add value over there. Um, we've, we're only 18 months old versus them being three generations old, that relationship being three generations old. Um, so we don't add value over there. Um, but uh, 
in places where the RT and the middlemen was taking advantage of farmers, now uh, farmers are just shifting over to us. And in those places, the middleman also realizes that, hey, I was taking them for a night. I've got to find somebody else to cheat now. So that's really interesting. So, I mean, uh, so you talked about the value prop, right? So what about the business model? Because there has to be, there has to be for you a way to make money, right? Um, are you talking transaction fees or are you talking about, uh, in terms of business model, are you talking about like a percentage? Like how does that aspect of thing work out? Yeah, so multiple actually. Um, we, we work with the farmer and figure out what they're comfortable with and what we're also comfortable with in that situation. So in some examples, in some cases, sorry, we actually buy the inventory from the farmer. Uh, we, we have that confidence because we use a bit of satellite imagery. We use a bit of tech to understand the health of the farmer, his past history, the farmer's crop, the, his fields, uh, last five years history. So we're able to judge whether this particular farmer and this piece of land that we're about to procure from um, has generally had a good yield or not. Uh, once we're confident about that, we sometimes become the buyers and we pay at the full market price and we say, here you go, no commissions cut. We just want the inventory. Because we've already lined up um, buyers in multiple markets or maybe it's the export market. And so we're very willing to, we're happy to take that risk. We're happy to deploy our working capital in such a situation and then make uh, money or revenue on that margin uh, between the buying cost and the selling cost. So that's one way of doing it. Some farmers say, um, listen, you sell it for us and you keep a commission. So you could call us paralika artis. That's what we do at times. Um, in that scenario, we don't charge the regular commission. We charge a lot less than that. Why? Because we also want to continue to build relationships with farmers and also on the other side, on the demand side. Um, so we do that. That's a, that's a very simple proposition because we don't have to then uh, take the risk of carrying inventory or deploying our own working capital. But that's another one. We also, because we've been doing this for a while now and particularly with our exports, we provide exports as a service to folks. Um, a lot of people want to help contribute to the inflow of foreign exchange into the country. And you'd be surprised that uh, one of Pakistan's biggest exports is potatoes. Um, so um, we help with that. So we say, listen, we will help you get the alu. <laughs> we'll get the farmers. We'll pack it for you. We'll put it in a container. We'll ship it out for you. We'll even sell it in Dubai for you um, and uh, that's what you do and for that we get paid either a commission or we share in the profits on, uh, that are generated from that trade but it's somebody else's working capital that we deploy so these are the three primary models that we earn money from thank you so much uh, for sharing that uh, sometimes founders are not that open about how they make money so that's definitely great to learn how you make money um so keeping with that same on the same topic about like startups right so um you touched on the market uh, the market agriculture market itself is very inefficient and you're bring trying to bring uh, efficiency towards it so this is your second startup and being your second startup, I'm pretty sure there's a lot you learned from your first startup. So can you touch on some 
uh, challenges like as a second time founder that you face that you didn't face as a first time founder? And if there are any like, you know, lessons that you took from the first time uh, as a first time founder and then made sure that you don't make those same mistakes again? Many lessons. Um, I would love to say that I haven't made the same mistakes again. <laughs> I would love to say that thing. But no, man, uh, a lot of similar uh, things. So uh, what I've learned, um, what I learned at Mocha and I'm learning here right now in Easy Fresh as well is cash is king. Guys, um, having cash is awesome, but having too much cash is also bad. Uh, not that I've experienced having a lot of cash, but I've seen folks with a lot more cash and they've made some mistakes. And uh, no, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll raise my hand here, actually. Um, we've made mistakes when we've raised capital and uh, looking back, we say, yeah, this this was supposed, this could have been a half an hour discussion and it would have been clear that um, But when you have that cushion, when you have resources, maybe you just speed along. Maybe you lower your guards. Um, so we've been done this. So the, my first lesson uh, every time is cash. Um, in the environment that we're in, um, we're raising capital from outside, from investors, is very, very difficult. The second thing that I've learned, which we were also doing at Mocha, is become self-sustainable. Um, you should be able to survive on your own revenues. Um, those are very difficult conversations to have internally. We have, for example, the reason I do startups, the reason I am in this painful situation every time, is uh, because I, I, I feel that I want to build um, build something that generates employment. I feel that the best way to take anyone out of poverty, any household out of poverty, is to give them a respectable uh, job. That's why I do startups. And then when you're talking about saying, we've, got, we, we've just got a limited amount of cash and we've got to really prioritize. We've got to really slim down. Do we need to be doing X and Y? The, should we close some parts of our business down? It runs counter to why you're doing a lot of things, why I'm doing a lot of things, but those are hard decisions we end up taking. So it just makes being frugal uh, and building on your own revenue stream, building your business based on your own revenue stream. Something I've learned is uh, critical. It shouldn't be delayed. It should be the first priority for every founder. Right. So I, I know we were talking off the record earlier, but so you find yourself in very painful situations every time. And I guess you chase that. So, um, so you, you also like, you know, you went from a uh, mock online and it didn't work out. And so the, I mean, I also just want to touch, if you want to share this, uh, psychologically speaking, like that has to have an effect on you. Um, how did you bounce back from that? And you were like, you know what, let me try something different again. And, this time, um, you know, even though your pain tolerance might be very high, I'm going to succeed. Oh, wow. Great question. Yeah. So I think the first thing that I would attribute um, the ability to bounce back is actually family. Um, I think my wife's been insanely supportive and being okay, being okay with, uh, with me taking these risks. Um, so I think that that's, that cushions it, that cushions a blow. Um, if there's a the finances are poor and really bad in poor shape. But knowing that you have uh, your partner is uh, standing by you, 
is a really big thing. So that's one. Um, that's how I've actually been able to, yeah, I think that's, that's one thing that's kept me going. The second thing is this um, probably irrational beliefs, uh, definitely irrational for others. But um, it's an irrational belief uh, that I have that I can build something, I can contribute, I should contribute. Um, my potential is way more than just my recent success or failure. I don't see, I don't, I don't equate a recent event or I try not to equate a recent event with uh, long-term um, success or failure. I, I just don't have that uh, in me. Um, so probably very irrational. Probably very irrational, but it keeps me going. And then finally, I think um, um, a lot of, um, yeah, I, I run a lot. So I guess uh, that controls a lot of things in the head. <laughs> so physical activity and like, in, you know, uh, having support, family support, uh, people who are around you and rooting for you, even though, you know, everything, you know, around you is falling apart, still they're standing beside you. And I think that that really, really makes a lot of difference. So uh, having talked about like, you know, Malkan Line, I know you went to airlift for like a very short stint, uh, three months. Um, I'm pretty sure once you have that itch of being an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to be, you know, uh, part of an organization and like, you know, have a bureaucracy around it and stuff, right? So you moved on right away. Uh, and you also touched on like how you identified a need in the market. Tell me a little bit about working because back when you joined, it was a year before Airlift went under. Uh, how was the like environment like, you know, because... This was 2021 and valuations were high. Money was easy. Must have been a different environment as far as like the ecosystem goes, as well as working at a startup goes. How was that like? Prior to Airlift and Mocha, um, I've worked for a few organizations and some big companies. Um, I think I, I have about a decade of corporate experience. When I joined Airlift, um, I used to tell everyone, and I still uh, live by that, the best place, really. It brought out the best in people, not just me. Um, I was one of the older folks over there, um, but the best in people, the entire culture that was set up at Airlift uh, by the founders and all the founding team members and everyone. It was it was borderline cultish, but in a very, very positive way, in a very positive way. They knew they were solving a huge problem. They knew they were the right folks to do this. And they knew they were going to make it big. In the environment, uh, in the environment that we were in, where there was a lot of capital coming in, um, I think Airlift made zero mistakes. They made zero mistakes. They were, it was a machine fine-tuned for a particular environment, and they were doing it in the best possible way. In Pakistan, definitely, and probably in other, if we were to benchmark them against other similar organizations in a similar time period, they would still be the best. Them going under or running out of cash, that was a different environment. That's a completely different environment. Uh, you can't change an organization. It wasn't just an organization. It had become a beast. You can't change the direction of a beast, the philosophy, the ethos of a beast overnight. You can't. And so it was, it's very, very unfortunate um, that they had to shut down. But I'm, I'm still very grateful, one, for my personal experience of working with them and learning from them, uh, but two, also for them being sort of like a beacon of hope for all these startups. Raising that much money in a country like Pakistan, our finance minister is finding difficult to raise that kind of money for the country. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, you know, 
one startup did it. So right, right, yeah. I mean, the the ecosystem did definitely like benefit a lot during like you know the twenty twenty one twenty twenty two time period, and things have of course the dust has settled, and uh, you know the easy money is gone. So I'm pretty sure uh, you know you are either trying to, I don't know if you have publicly announced if you have raised money or not, but uh, if you're trying to raise or if you're planning to raise in the future, um, right now must not be a great time to be raising money. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are asking you about advice. So if you could share things about like, okay, how do you, how do you even begin to convince someone that Pakistan is the, you know, the next place to be investing in? Like, how do you even start? Yeah. Um, so I personally quit fundraising as an active fundraising a few months back, uh, about three, four months back. Four, yeah. Uh, because I just felt we were hitting um, our heads against the wall. Not because uh, we were doing a very bad job uh, at pitching or whatever. No, not really that. But because just the environment has changed. There's no capital flowing, um, freely flowing in the world. Pakistan is the frontier of the frontier markets, um, then our own current economic, political situation just makes it very, diffi very difficult for people to believe that things will change immediately. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to hedge their bets. I've had m multiple conversations uh, with folks and I've been asked questions like, when do you see the economy of Pakistan stabilizing? What do you think will be the dollar rate in uh, X months? Um, when will the elections be? Uh, stuff like that. And um, these are questions that uh, are a red flag. Um, this conversation is not about Easy Fresh. This conversation is not about Mustafa or the co-founder's ability to execute on a mission. Uh, it's not about that. These are very different conversations that are not in my control. And so it's it's easier to just concentrate on building something uh, in, uh, something self-sustaining. So my advice, Zayed, sorry, this was a big uh, prelude to it. My advice to founders right now, if they're facing, um, yeah, your best bet right now is to make sure that you survive with whatever money you have right now. Try and build something that is self-sustaining, even if it's tiny, even if it's tiny, but just try and build something that is your net burn in your organization is zero or ideally you should be generating, even if it's like 100 rupees of profit in a whole month, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but don't be burning money. Uh, just do that. If you can do that, uh, the, the winter will clear, the storm will die out, we'll have sunshine again, spring will come, all of the fun stuff will happen. But the person who survived this winter will be the first one to benefit from it. So to survive. And most of the time, like, you know, that's the one question I'm getting all the time. Like, okay, you know, funding has gone down. There's literally no transactions. What's going on? I'm like, yeah, it's trouble. But like, you know, if you are building something and if there's nothing else you would rather do, then just keep doing it. Um, and if not, then you know, then quit. Because if, if all you need is money to build something, then I guess it's not the right problem to solve. Uh, because clearly you will not get that money easily, at least right now. So... Um, yeah, I won't take much of your time. So I want to wrap it up by asking you, uh, you know, what is next for Easy Fresh? Like, where are you going? And how fast do you think you're going to move in the next five years, next 10 years? So our immediate uh, goal is to fully break even. That's what we're doing with very, very close, tantalizingly close to it. That's uh, so a fully sustainable business. That's what we're building right now. Um, there are a few 
technology plays that we're uh, building out at the moment. Uh, a few of them are related to price predictions in different markets because we do a lot of um, rework in a lot of markets. Um, and I think uh, we've come close to a solution over there. We're working on a bit of technology solutions to a certain quality um, and provide some sort of a quality certification guarantee using just uh, a bit of machine learning and tech um, between the farmers and the existing RTs and importers in different countries. That's what we're working on. And um, yeah, finally, it's a bit uh, based on crop advisory. We do want to continue to build out the kind of free advice we give to farmers. Um, we've recently been able to build, uh, so now farmers can actually use um, our solution to just take a photo of a plant uh, of their crop and it tells them what disease the crop has and then what pesticide they should apply to it and so on. So a few different angles, uh, the opportunities that have arisen just because we've been working in this field. These are problems that we've identified along the value chain and we want to continue to work on that. Any any plans to expand outside of Pakistan, at least not, I mean, in the, in the near future? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So our uh, immediate plan is actually for the GCC particularly Dubai, because it's a very big market for us. We already export over there. So we want to set up shop, like a proper open up an office over there and continue this uh, trading business that we do. Um, the um, the tools that we're building, are we're actually designing them in a manner that they're uh, for the developing countries. So we're already talking to a few partners in Africa and giving them the tools that we've already developed for farmers in Pakistan. And so eventually we see ourselves as um, uh, a, a company that's helping farmers or organizations uh, that are in the agri space across the developing country, not just restricted to Pakistan. Thank you for such an in insightful conversation. Uh, lovely learning about what you're building and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you very much for having me always. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Missile Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and will thank me by writing a review or sharing it on social media. Make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks again. See you soon.